Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is a Wednesday, June 28th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, It will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. That book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for almost 19 years now, to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also download a whole host of audio files of shows just like this one where people have been stepped through that worksheet process. And if you choose to listen to those uh, over time, they can serve as a powerful tutorial for you to help you get maximum benefits from these tools in the shortest amount of time possible. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It also contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process. And it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. 
will help people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives. And secondarily, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1, it'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code, and we can have a conversation. As always, we appreciate when anybody does that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. And the intention with this work is to be a service. So if you'd be so kind, let us know. How can we be a service to you? What's on your mind? What's landing well for you? What's a challenge for you in this work? And um, the more that we hear from you, the easier it is for us to live into that intention to be a service. So again, 563-999-3581. Once you call that number, press 1 on your phone, and we can have a conversation. We had our support group last night, and we listened to some of the Michael Singer lectures that he's giving from his 11 or 12 hours of lecture on the principles of a deep dive into the principles from his book, The Untethered Soul. And um, we we only listened to about a half an hour of that, and it was so intense that we then went to discussion to try and and, um, uh, assist people in sorting out what is it he's really saying. Is it possible that all I really need to do to have a better life is learn how to observe my life differently. It isn't that I need to develop tools or tips or techniques, but I just need to understand what's happening when I do anything other than just observing in my life and how when I do anything other than just observe in my life, I'm creating the tensions and the upsets and the judgments and the negative emotions that I say I don't want. And you know, his, his answer to that is yes, that, that's exactly what's going to happen. The more we learn how to just observe and to notice when we're doing something other than just observing. And when we literally allow that process to unfold rather than trying to force it to happen, we create a very different message to the to the world, to ourselves. We create a very different experience of life. In, in there, in the moment, sometimes instantaneously, sometimes incrementally over time, and yet always change will be happening. This morning I was doing some more reading in the book. Um, Awareness from Anthony DeMello. And 
occasionally when I am reading one of those books, whether it's uh, on a Kindle or a hardback book, I I send myself a note. And this ties in with a little bit of what we were reading from A Walk in the Physical and a lot with what we were watching and, and listening to in the support group last night. This is the idea that a lot of people, when they're told to just observe and and back away from the judgment, watch the judgment without buying into it, they hear that they're being told they shouldn't do anything. They should do nothing. And um, that's not what we're being told. So in the book Awareness with Anthony DeMello, he um, he has a section titled Negative Feelings Toward Others. And one of the things it says in that section is any time you have a negative feeling toward anyone, you're living in an illusion. There's something seriously wrong with you. You are not seeing reality. Michael Rice here would use the word actuality. Something inside you has to change. But what have we been trained to do? What do we generally do when we have a negative feeling? We're trained to say he is to blame, she is to blame. They have to change. And Anthony DeMello says no with an exclamation point. The world is all right just the way it is. When you have a negative feeling, the one who has to change is you. He goes on and says, one of you in his seminar, one of the people told about working in an institution, and during a staff meeting, someone would inevitably say, the food stinks around here. And then the regular dietitian would go into orbit because she was identified with the food. She's saying, anybody who attacks the food attacks me, and I feel threatened. But the I, in quotes, your true nature, your essence, is never threatened. It's only your thoughts about yourself or what you consider me that is threatened. And then it says, but suppose you witness some out-and-out injustice, something that is obviously and objectively wrong. Would it not be a proper reaction to say this should not be happening? Should you somehow want to involve yourself in correcting a situation that's wrong? Someone's injuring a child, you see abuse going on. What about that kind of thing? Well, Anthony says, I hope you did not assume that I was saying you shouldn't do anything. I said that if you didn't have negative feelings, you would be much 
more effective, much more effective. Because when negative feelings come in, you go blind. Quote, me, close quotes, steps into the picture and everything gets fouled up. All of my thoughts about me and how magnificent I am or how people should treat me this way or that way or how I know what's right and I know what's wrong and nobody else does the way I do, all those thoughts step in and everything gets fouled up. Now, where we had one problem on our hands before, now we have two or three or five problems. Many people wrongly assume that not having negative feelings like anger and resentment and hate means that you do nothing about a situation. Oh, no, no, no. If you're not affected emotionally, but you're there, you see, you're in direct observation mode, you spring into action, Krishnamurti would say. You let the truth of life in that moment act on you, and you act in accordance without all the distortion, without all of the grandiosity, without all of the rage, without all of the fear, without all of the shame and guilt, you become very sensitive to things and people around you. What kills the sensitivity is what many people would call the conditioned self. When you so identify with your sense of who you are, the me, and you so identify with it that there's too much of me in it for you to see things objectively with detachment, that's when you create more problems. It's very important that when you swing into action, you be able to see things with detachment. Negative emotions prevent that. So it's so very useful to have tools like the reality management worksheet, the EFT tapping, the calming breath work, to dismantle the negative emotions, to be able to train yourself to look at the source of your negative emotions, which is always inside of you, to undo the conditioning that has you looking to the outside world as the source of your upset and irritation. What then, he goes on and says, what then would we call the kind of passion that motivates or activates energy into doing something about objective evils? Well, I don't care what you call it, he says. Whatever it is, it is not a reaction. It's direct action. It's born in the moment from direct observation without all the distortions. We talk about this. I have people in my office, and I'll hold my hands up with my fingers splayed wide open, and I'll put them in front of me crisscrossed and moving between myself and my, my, my line of sight of the person in front of me, and I say, my left hand is like, hostility and my right hand is like fear and when these things are active in my mind they distort my perception as much as my fingers right now are distorting my perception of the person I'm looking at and I say this is why trial attorneys talk about wanting the 
witness for the opposing side to be in hostility or fear whenever they're cross-examining them because that's when they make mistakes. When these hostility and fear filters get loaded in my mind, I am not seeing things clearly. I am much more likely to do something that I later regret. Anthony in his writing goes on. He says, some of you wonder if there is a gray area before something becomes an attachment, before identification sets in. Let's say a friend dies. It seems right and very human to feel some sadness about that. But what reaction? Self-pity? What would you be grieving about? Think about that. What I'm saying is going to sound horrible to you, but I told you, I'm coming from another world here. Your reaction is personal loss, right? Oh, feel sorry for me or for other people that your friend might have brought joy to. But that means you're feeling sorry for other people who are feeling sorry for themselves. If they're not feeling sorry for themselves, what would you be feeling sorry for? Then he makes this statement. We never feel grief when we lose something that we have allowed to be free. When we lose something that we have never attempted to possess. Grief is a sign that I made my happiness depend on this thing or person, at least to some extent. We're so accustomed to hear the opposite of this that what I say sounds almost inhuman, doesn't it? When I was thinking about presenting this this morning, I was thinking about the the flow of different things we presented from Michael Rice to Michael Singer to Guy Finley to Anthony DeMello to Christian Sundberg and Thomas W. Campbell and Byron Katie and Diedrich Wolzak and and each of these people has a slightly different way to talk about the same set of observations, fundamentally the same set of observations. And I was thinking about this. Michael Singer in his talks has been talking about, of course you're going to feel grief at the loss of someone. And, and you don't have to think of it as a horrible negative thing. It's just the most intense energy your heart has ever felt. It's the most discordant note that your heart can play in the symphony of life. And if you, don't, if you judge it as bad or wrong, then you have a whole different experience of it. But if you step back and watch it and say, oh my gosh, this grief, I've never felt anything as intense. This is amazing that I didn't realize my heart could feel this deeply or this way. Then some people listen to the Michael Singer talk and they say, see, Michael Singer says grief is natural and normal and we should, and that's, and then now now we're pitting one teacher or one theologian or one philosopher, one spiritual teacher or one teaching against another. And I just have to keep coming back to encourage you to drop that. There is no benefit to anything in your life to deciding that your teaching or your teacher is better or more right than another. 
in the moment of you living your life, if you see something clearly and it shifts so that it's no longer a torture to you or a suffering for you, that's the only thing that has value. We have people that have been on the support groups and been in the on the internet show for you know the last twelve plus years now, and occasionally they'll come up with um the deeper the grief I have for somebody, the more proof there is how deeply I love them that that my love for the person is directly connected to my grief for them, and I don't try and convince those people that that's not the way it works. I do talk about different teachers or different ways to examine that for yourself, to observe that for yourself, just to see if that has to be a hard and fast rule of your life experience. Or is it possible that you take the same life experiences you've had and breathe and soften and question what that dynamic is for you question the beliefs you have around it and just watch for yourself not for anybody else watch how within yourself it may or may not shift your experience i don't pretend to have access to the absolute truth certainly none that i could write down or speak about to you And so you may have a life experience that says, yep, my grief upon losing someone is directly proportional to how much I love that person. And my lack of grief is an indication that I didn't love them at all. That might be your experience. It might also be not the experience that someone else has. And it may not be the experience of someone in your life, an intimate friend, a family member. And if that's the case, all of these teachings that I've ever resonated with would call me to start observing for myself, am I generating negative emotions when I observe the difference between my experience and someone else's? Do I get myself all revved up in the negative or challenging or passionate emotion, if I want to use that word, when I think, well, this person says they love them, but they're not depressed and wailing and gnashing their teeth, so they didn't really love them. It's okay for me to have that observation. It's okay for me to generate negative emotions about it. It's also highly useful for me to understand that I'm the one generating those emotions. It's extraordinarily liberating to understand I'm the one that's creating my grief. And my grief is not being created by the fact that I had this person in my life for so long and I thoroughly enjoyed my time with them and then they left. Grief is not an inevitable consequence. It's not the same as here's some heat and I add it to a substance and the substance gets heated. I 
Anthony DeMello goes on to try and explain this a little bit more. He talks about, but it's what all the mystics of the past have been telling us. I'm not saying that the me or the conditioned self will not sometimes fall into unusual or its usual patterns. In other words, to state it positively, I understand that my conditioned mind, myself, the way it's been trained, will sometimes fall into its usual patterns. The point here is it happens because it's been conditioned to happen that way. It doesn't happen because the outside event is causing it. But that's how we've been conditioned. And this raises the question of whether it's conceivable to live a life in which you would be so totally alone that you depend on no one. Now, we all depend on another for all kinds of things, don't we? We depend on the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. That's interdependence, and that's fine. We set up society this way, and we allot different functions to different people for the welfare of many and everyone. And we do that so we will function better and live more effectively. At least that's what we hope. However, to depend on another psychologically... To depend on another emotionally, what does that imply? It means to depend on another human being for my happiness. Think about that. Think about it, because if you do depend on somebody else for your happiness, the next thing you'll be doing, whether you're aware of it or not, is demanding that other people contribute to your happiness that they do and say certain things, certain ways to bring you happiness. And then there will be a next step, fear, instantaneously fear, fear of loss, fear of alienation, fear of rejection. And there'll be this mutual control. My partner wants to control what I say and do. I want to control what he or she says and does. He goes on, perfect love casts out fear. Where there is love, there are no demands, no expectations, no dependency. To state it in the positive, where there is love, there is allowance, there is acceptance, there is trust, there is I forgot some of the other words that the way of mastery brings up. Love allows all things, love accepts all things, love trusts all things, love embraces all things, and thereby transcends all things. No dependency, no expectations, no demands. Think about how that clashes with everything you've been trained to into thinking about relationships from the Western world. He goes on and says, I do not demand that you make me happy. My happiness does not lie in you. If you were to leave me, I will not feel sorry for myself. I enjoy your company immensely, and I do not cling. I enjoy your company immensely on a non-clinging basis. What I really enjoy is not you. It's something greater than both you and me. 
It's something that I discovered. It's a kind of a symphony, a kind of an orchestra that plays one melody when I'm in your presence, but when you depart, the orchestra doesn't stop. When I meet someone else, it plays another melody, which is also very delightful. And when I'm alone, it continues to play, and that melody is delightful. There's a great repertoire, and it never ceases to play. This resonates in my ears, my mind, exactly what Michael Singer is talking about in his book, The Untethered Soul, and his lecture series on that, and in the Surrender Experiment. This is exactly the same truth as the deep Buddhist meditators and the Tao Te Ching is trying to get us to understand. The flow of life is a symphony that plays wonderful music in every situation, and it's only our labeling as bad or wrong that creates our negative response to it. There's always a great repertoire of music playing, and it never ceases. That's what awakening is all about. This is what he says again to pick up the reading in this book, Awareness. That's what awakening is all about. That's also why we're hypnotized, brainwashed, and asleep. It seems terrifying to ask, but can you be said to love me if you cling to me and you will not let me go? If you won't let me be me, can you be said to love me if you need me psychologically or emotionally for your happiness? This flies in the face of universal teaching of all the scriptures, of all the religions, of all the mystics. How have we missed it for so many years? I say this to myself repeatedly. How could I, how did I not come to see this? When you read those radical things in the scriptures, you begin to wonder, is this man crazy? But after a while, you begin to think everybody else is crazy. And the quote from the scriptures is, unless you hate your father and your mother, brothers and sisters, unless you renounce and give up everything you possess, you cannot be my disciple, close quotes. Anthony writes, you must drop it all. Not physical renunciation, you understand, that's easy. When your illusions drop, you're in touch with reality at last. And believe me, you will never again be lonely. Never again. Loneliness is not cured by human company. Loneliness is cured by direct contact with actuality, with reality, in his words. Oh, I have so much to say about that. Contact with reality, dropping one's illusions, making contact with what is real, what is actual in the moment. Whatever it is, it has no name. We can only know it by dropping what is unreal. You can only know what aloneness is when you drop your clinging, when you drop your dependency. But the first step toward that is that you see it as undesirable. Right now, we've been conditioned to think connection, dependency, craving, is desirable. You can't, you've been trained to think being alone is dangerous, 
is shameful, is an indication that you lack value. What's wrong with me? I'm X number of years old and I, I'm not in a relationship or I'm not married yet or nobody loves me, everybody hates me, think I'll go eat worms. So the first step in this is to understand that being in direct contact with what actually is and enjoying the symphony of life as it's playing out inside you when you're alone, that that's a desirable thing. He closes this segment by saying, think of the loneliness that is yours. Would human companionship ever take it away? No, it will only serve as a distraction. There's an emptiness inside you, isn't there? And when the emptiness surfaces, what do you do? You run away. You turn on the television. You turn on the radio. You read a book. You search for human company. You seek entertainment. You seek distraction. Everybody does that. That's what we've been conditioned to do. It's big business nowadays. It's an organized industry to distract us and entertain us. The solution is to come home to yourself. Observe yourself. That's why I said earlier that self-observation is a delightful and an extraordinary thing. After a while, you don't have to make any effort because all the illusions begin to crumble and you begin to know things that cannot be described. It's called happiness. Everything changes and you become addicted to awareness. There's a shift in perception. I interviewed somebody this morning. I think he was five years old, he said, when his father died. And he immediately went into um, deep, deep depression, which he treated with food. His mother was, he was not very attached to his mother, but very attached to his father, not very attached to his mother. His father dies. His mother goes into grief. She can't connect with him, didn't even connect with him well before the father died. So here's this five-year-old basically raising himself and eating everything he can get his hands on and ballooning up in weight. And by the time he's 13, he turns to drugs and heroin. Heroin's the first time that he felt like, oh, my God, this is what I've been looking for, because it numbed him out from the pain. So he went through all of the stuff that people at that age in that kind of situation do, and he figured out he'd already been stealing money left and right and food left and right till he could feed his food addiction. So now he just switched over to stealing money and and using it for drugs. And it resulted in jail time and all of this other horrible stuff. And, and then something happened where he decided, okay, well, I've got a certain level of intelligence. I think I'll start looking for answers. And he turned and got all kinds of degrees and certifications and neurolinguistic programming and all kinds of other therapy techniques and still was a mess and got into a a drug rehab program, and then, and there's, oh, my gosh, it's so great that you're not using drugs. But he gained 100 pounds in, you know, in like three, four months. And everybody was congratulating him on such a great job he's doing not using heroin, but he was eating himself to death. And he went for years like that. 
and then some, something turned him toward a more spiritual thing, and he went to a, a, a two-day, they called it an intensive, but it was basically just sitting in a house with seven other people listening to um, somebody who was a spiritual teacher, and um, Michael Neal, I think his name was. And in that experience, Jason, the gentleman I was interviewing, Jason Shires, Jason was sitting there with his notebook trying, and he's like just thinking, my God, I got to get, you know, I got to get stuff done. I get my money's worth out of this. I mean, like this cost me a lot of money to be here. It's only two days, and this guy was, you know, ten minutes late, and now he wants to take a two-hour lunch, and and, and what am I going to write down during lunch and learn and get from this? And and the the Michael came over to him and said, you know, you don't really need to write down everything I said here. You can put your notebook down. You can just sit here and relax he says is it possible for you to just be here for a few minutes and Jason said it was a life-changing moment no one had ever just invited him to just slow down and just be here in the moment and he had this transformation over the next day and a half or whatever it was and he knew instantly he'd been in he was a therapist, acting as a therapist. He'd been trained in all these different things. He had his own therapist. I think he said he'd been seeing the therapist for seven years. He had a special relationship with him. And he knew after that two days he was no longer going to do therapy. He called his therapist and said, my next session is going to be my last one. I don't need this. He quit going to 12-step programs because he didn't need it anymore, because he'd gotten a shift of recognizing that all of that stuff he was doing with food and with relationships and drugs was just running from some false beliefs about how he he wasn't enough inside of him. And he somehow in that experience got a glimpse that he was fine. He was whole and complete in his core. He had that spiritual realization that we keep alluding to in this work when we say you come from love, you're made of love, you are love, everything else is false. He had a realization of that that changed his life. That's what Anthony DeVello was pointing at here. He's saying, as long as you convince yourself that you need somebody else in your life to be happy and you need them to say and do this or that in order for you to be happy, you will not break out of that prison that you're creating. So he invites us to come home to ourselves and observe ourselves. He says there's the story of the disciple that went to the master and said, the disciple said to the master, can you give me a word of wisdom? Could you tell me something that could guide me through my days? And it was the master's day of silence, so he picked up a pad and said, I'm back. I had to sneeze, so stifle a sneeze and sneeze. He, the, the, uh, the master picked up the pad and, and wrote awareness. When the disciple saw it, he said, this is too brief. Can you expand on it a bit? So the master picked up the pad again and he wrote, awareness, awareness, awareness. The disciple read it and said, yes, but what does it mean? The master picked up the pad and wrote, Awareness, awareness, awareness means 
dash awareness. Literally, if you don't know what awareness means, if you don't know how to observe, no one can teach you. Because essentially all that means is there's a programming running in your mind that you're valuing more highly than you value your, na- your true nature. Your true nature is curiosity and awareness. Anthony goes on and says, that's what it is to watch yourself. No one can show you how to do it because he would be giving you a technique. She would be programming you. But you can watch yourself. That's what happens. You're watching. You're observing. You were born curious and observing. Anthony asks, so when you talk to someone, are you aware of it or are you simply identifying with it? When you get angry with somebody, were you aware that you were angry or were you simply identifying with your anger? Later, when you had the time, did you study your experience and attempt to understand it? Where did that come from? What brought it on? How did I generate that anger? Anthony writes, I don't know of any other way to awareness. You only change what you understand. What you do not understand and are not aware of, you repress. You don't change. But when you understand it, it changes. I'm sometimes asked, he writes, is this growing in awareness a gradual thing or is it a whammo kind of thing? He says, well, there are some lucky people who see this in a flash. They just become aware, like the situation I described with Jason uh, Shires. There are some lucky people who see this in a flash. They just become aware. There are others who keep growing into it, slowly, gradually, increasingly. They begin to see things. Illusions drop away. Fantasies are peeled away, and they start to get in touch with facts. There is no general rule. There's a, fam- there's a famous story about a lion who came upon a flock of sheep, and to his amazement, he found a lion among the sheep. It was a lion who'd been brought up by the sheep ever since it was a cub. And this lion would bleat like a sheep and run around like a sheep. Well, the, the lion went straight for him. And when the sheep stood in front of the real one, he trembled in every limb. And the lion said to the lion that thought he was a sheep, What are you doing among these sheep? And the sheep lion said, Well, I'm a sheep. And the lion said, Oh, no, you're not. You're coming with me. And so he took the sheep lion to a pool and said, Look. And when the sheep lion looked at his reflection in the water, he let out a mighty roar. And in that moment, he was transformed. He was never the same again. If you're lucky and the gods are gracious, or if you're gifted with divine grace, use any theological expression you want, you might suddenly understand who the I within you really is. And then you'll never be the same again, just like Jason Shire's in my interview this morning. Nothing will ever be able to touch you again, and no one will ever be able to hurt you again. You'll fear no one, and you'll fear nothing. 
isn't that extraordinary. You'll live like a king or a queen. You'll know what this means to live like royalty, not this rubbish of getting all the pictures in the paper and having a lot of money. That's a lot of rot. You fear no one because you're perfectly content to be nobody. You don't give a damn about success or failure. They mean nothing. Honor, disgrace, they mean nothing. If you make a fool of yourself, it means nothing. Isn't it a wonderful state to be in? Some people arrive at this goal painstakingly, step by step, through months and weeks and years of self-awareness. But I'll promise you this, I have not known a single person who gave time to being aware who didn't see a difference in a matter of weeks. The quality of their life changes, so they don't have to take it on faith anymore. They see it, they're different, they react differently. In fact, they react less and they act more. They see things they've never seen before. They're more energetic and more alive. People think that if they had no cravings, there'd be like dead wood. The fact is, you'd lose your tension. You get rid of your fear of failure, and you get rid of your fear of tensions about succeeding or failing. You'll be yourself. You'll be relaxed. You won't be driving with your brakes on. That's what would happen. There's a lovely saying of the Chinese sage. When the, ar- when the archer shoots for no particular prize, he has all his skills. When he shoots to win a brass buckle, he's already nervous. When he shoots for a gold prize, he goes blind. He sees two targets and he's out of his mind. His skill has not changed, but the prize divides him. He cares. He thinks more of winning than of shooting, and the need to win drains him of power. That's the quote. Isn't that an image of what most people are? When you're living for nothing, you've got all your skills. You've got all your energy. You're relaxed. You don't care. It doesn't matter whether you win or lose. Now, there's human living for you. That's what life is all about. That can only come from awareness. And in awareness, you will understand that honor doesn't mean a thing. It's a social convention. That's all. That's why the mystics and the prophets didn't bother one bit about it. Honor or disgrace meant nothing to them. They were living in another world, in the world of the awakened. Success or failure meant nothing to them. They had the attitude, I'm an ass, you're an ass, so where's the problem? Someone once said the three most difficult things for a human being are not physical feats or intellectual achievements. They are first, returning love for hate. That's the hardest thing to do. Second, including the excluded. And third, admitting that you're wrong. However, these things are the easiest things in the world to do if you haven't identified with your sense of who you are. 
someone special, the me, your identity, your ego. You can say things like, I'm wrong. If you knew me better, you'd see how often I'm wrong. What do you expect from an ass? But if I haven't identified with these aspects of me, you can't hurt me. Initially, the old conditioning will kick in and you'll be depressed and anxious. You'll grieve and cry and so on. Before enlightenment, I used to be depressed. After enlightenment, I continue to be depressed. But there's a difference. I don't identify with being depressed anymore. You know what a big difference that is? So, that's all I'm going to read from his book today. Area code 563-999-3581. Here's hoping that some of that is resonating and is of use to somebody on the call. We've got about 10 minutes left for comment or question. Area code 541, you're in the air. Good morning, Dr. Tim. Good morning. This is Belinda. Belinda. <clears throat> Everything you read today was right on for me. I mean, I just feel like these little pearls are being dropped into my lap right and left the last few days. I would um, ask, what chapter was that in Anthony DeMello's book of the Awakening? Or did you read from a chapter? I I was reading from a, a chapter, and and it is a very different thing from the Kindle version to the Audible version. So that having been said, I was reading from the Kindle version. And I read through a couple sections. They're not really chapter numbers. They're sections, and the first one was titled Negative Feelings Toward Others. Okay. And I read that one, and I read some of the section on on dependence and some on the section of how happiness happens. Now, is a Kindle book, since I don't do Kindle, is that the same as the written hardback copy or the written... Um... Not, not always. Mm. But, 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 but it, it'll be closer, especially in the Anthony DeMello case, than the Audible. <clears throat> Perfect. The, the, the Audible is quite, quite different from the Kindle, ver- the Kindle version. I believe I will go ahead and um, possibly see if I can find that on a books because it really resonates for me and it just ties in everything I'm learning and I just it's helping me. Well, I have had the I've had the paperback version of that book. Um, um, I recent not too long ago gave it away, um, but it is available in paperback. Good. Perfect. I shall try to find it. It's just like I'm building my little building blocks of uh, spiritual support, and I'm just really enjoying growing more and more and more inclusive um, in all aspects of my life. I'm I'm pretty happy about that. (laughs) Well, congratulations. I'm glad that's happening for you. 
Thank you so much. Even, so even even more happy for you if you can discern how that's happening and and continue it. It seems to be happening. It's very strange because I find myself just I guess the word is detach. I'm not sure because it's not like I'm withdrawing. Uh, maybe I'm getting a broader perspective and uh, becoming more aware uh, just by watching myself what I need to be paying attention to and how I need to be doing so that I'm not distracting myself, but I'm actually putting one spiritual foot in front of the other as I go along. And I've discovered a feeling of needing to listen more because listening is probably my weakest learning mode and discerning what a true listening is. Uh, it's just, an, I don't know how to explain it. Maybe my egg is cracking. It's the crack in the cosmic egg of Celinda or whoever that is. <laughs> Well, it, it kind of sounds like what we're reading from Anthony DeMello about releasing attachment to all of the thoughts about who you should be and just being. And just the awareness as I go uh, on my past, and I have to chuckle because last night in the support group, uh, the, I just realized that the reason I ask people to give me feedback is because in my growing up situation, everything was just chaos. I mean, what was was denied and what wasn't was enforced and um, a a very schizoid sort of uh, alcoholic background and that um, we just, uh, it's just Chaos is just like I never knew what was real and what was false. I never knew whom to trust and whom not to trust. I never knew on my mother's side of the family now, and that's where I lived most of my life. Um, And it's just interesting to watch that all of my attachments that I had from my father's side of the family, from my brother, um, all of those things was this sense of abandonment and loss and I never, I'll never be enough, and they'll never be enough, and I'll never get to have my way. And it's just like this morass, and it's, and it's like looking at it from the eyes of a teeny tiny child and saying that that me is within me, but that me doesn't encompass all of me. And so I can just maybe learn how to mother her now which was what I was asking for, to father her and mother her. I don't know how to explain it, Dr. Tim. Okay, well, I don't think you need to. As long as it's working for you. <laughs> so that's why I'll ask. I always ask for feedback because my I think I shut my awareness of body language down. I shut my awareness of all of my sensory input down just to survive, and now I feel like it's like a little 
caterpillar that is turning into the butterfly in my chrysalis, perhaps. <laughs> it's pretty cute. Life. All right. Well, congratulations. Hang in there. Anything else we can do to support you today? No. Uh, Everybody, including me, is my little lifeboat, and I I find it as as sort of a a safety zone as I um, reach out to trust, trust life itself, trust the whole process, trust myself and others. And whatever is happening is exactly the right happening for right now in all areas. That's a big one for me. I join you in that. All right. I'll mute you so you can listen to the second hour. Blessings. Thank you for the comments and the questions and statements. I'm um, sitting here with a on a Wednesday. There's no support group tonight, but there will be one again tomorrow. Um, I'll remind you that we have uh, resources available on the MindShiftersAcademy.org website as well as WhyAgain.org website to have, help you get access to the Reality Management Worksheet and the MindShifters Targeted Journaling Tool, a couple of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered, available absolutely free through those two sites. And we encourage people to use them, actively use them in your life and watch whatever your experience is. And and if you're so inclined, let us know how that's working for you after you've used it. And I look forward to hearing if you've got any feedback or any issues any problems any stuck points we might assist you with give us a call send us an email i don't think i mentioned earlier that you can send me an email at tjh at mindshifters academy.org you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at yagain.org and we'll address your comment or question or answer a testimonial on the radio show and then as time allows send you a notification about what day and time that happens so you can look back in the listen back in the archives for the feedback and i will remind us all that we come from love we're made of the stuff we call love you actually are love and everything else is false and i'll welcome Jeannie rice thank you dr tim Enjoyed the readings today, as always. You're very welcome and deserving. Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful show. Thank you. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of Mindshifters Radio, and today is Wednesday, June the 28th, 2023, and their call-in number is 563-999-3581, and press 1, and that puts you into queue to talk to us. And we would love to hear your comments and your questions because that makes this your show. And I'm going to, while Michael's dialing in, I will continue reading from Michael Singer's book, The Untethered Soul. 
and we are in chapter 10, and it's called Stealing Freedom for Your Soul. And we were reading yesterday, and it was talking about um, how, sorry, multitasking here. (laughs) And it talks about that you're suffering because you're giving your mind a job, and that's actually, you know, what we do when we have goals and we want um, to reach those goals. And so we tell our mind, and we usually blame someone else for what we're suffering, whether it's physical, mental, or emotional. And so our mind is going to try to prove that uh, you're right. And so, of course, it says, you know, I'm on the job and we'll work on it constantly. Can you imagine somebody trying to do that? The mind has to try to make it so that everything that you say is said the right way, taken the right way, and has the right effect on everybody. It has to make sure that everything that you do is interpreted and seen the right way. And that nobody does anything that hurts you or brings up hurt for you. It's worded a little incorrectly, but we think he's probably in the same mindset as what we teach. Um, It has to make sure, that's your mind, that you get everything that you want and that you don't ever get what you don't want. Of course, we know that if your focus is on what you don't want, that that's what you're going to get. The mind is constantly trying to give you advice about how to make it all okay. That's why the mind is so active. You gave it an impossible task to do. It's equivalent to expecting your body to lift trees and scale mountains in a single jump. Your body would get sick if you kept trying to make it do things that it was incapable of doing. That is what has broken the cycle. The signs of the body breaking are pain and weakness. The signs of the psyche breaking are underlying fear and incessant neurotic thought. At some point, you have to wake up and acknowledge that you have a problem inside. Just watch and you'll see that your mind is constantly telling you what to do. It tells you to go here, but not there, and to say this, but not that. It tells you what to wear, what not to wear. It has never stopped. Wasn't it that way in high school? Wasn't it that way in junior high, elementary school? Hasn't it always been that way? This act of constantly worrying about yourself is a form of suffering. But how do you fix this? How do you get it to stop? Most people try to fix their inner problems by getting better at the same external games that they have always played. If we take a snapshot of our inner problems, we will see that each person has what we'll call the problem of the day. This is the thing that is bothering them the most at any given moment. When the current problem isn't bothering them, then the next one pops up. And when that one isn't bothering them, then the next one pops up. That is what your thoughts are about. Your thoughts tend to focus on what is bothering you today. Your thoughts are about the problem, why it is bothering you, and what you can do about it. If you don't do something about this, it will go on for the rest of your life. What you'll see is that your mind is always telling you that you have to change something outside in order to solve your inside problems. 
But if you are wise, you won't play this game. You'll realize that the advice your mind is giving you is psychologically damaged advice. Your mind's thoughts are disturbed by its fear. Of all the advice in the world that you do not want to listen to, it is the advice of the disturbed mind. Your mind actually misleads you. Suppose it tells you, if I could just get that promotion, I'd be fine. I'd feel good about myself, get my life back together. Have you found that to be true? After you get the promotion, does that end all of your insecurities and leave you financially satisfied for the rest of your life? Of course not. All that happens is that the next problem comes to the surface. Once you see this, you realize the mind has a serious underlying problem. And what it's doing is making up external situations that might make things more comfortable. But the external situations are not the cause of the problem. They are merely an attempt to solve the problem. For example, if you feel loneliness and insufficiency within your heart, it's not because you haven't found a special relationship. That did not cause the problem. That relationship is your attempt to solve the problem. All you're doing is trying to see if a relationship will appease your inner disturbance. If it doesn't, you'll try something else. The fact is, however, external changes are not going to solve your problem because they don't address the root of your problem. The root problem is that you don't feel whole and complete within yourself. If you don't identify the root properly, you will seek someone or something to cover it up. You will hide behind finances, people, fame, and adoration. If you try to find the perfect person to love and adore you, you manage to succeed, and then you have actually failed. You did not solve your problem. All you did was involve that person in your problem. That is why people have so much trouble with relationships. You begin with a problem inside yourself. You tried to solve it by getting involved with somebody else. That relationship will have problems because your problems are what caused the relationship. It is all so easy to see once you step back and dare to look at it honestly. Now that we've seen what failure looks like, let's define success. Success regarding your psyche is comparable to health regarding your physical body. Success means you never have to think about your psyche again. A naturally healthy body is one that does what it's supposed to do while you're going about your business. You never have to think about it. Likewise, you should never have to figure out how to be okay or how to not be scared or how to feel loved. You should not have to devote your life to your psyche. Imagine what fun life would be if you didn't have those neurotic personal thoughts going on within you. You could enjoy things. You could actually get to know people instead of needing them. You could just live and experience your life instead of trying to use life to fix what's wrong inside of you. You are capable of achieving that state. It's never too late. Your current relationship with your psyche is like it is constantly making demands of you and you have devoted your life to serving those demands. 
If you want to be free, you have to learn to treat it like any other addiction. For example, drug addicts are capable of stopping their drug use, going through withdrawals, and never doing drugs again. Maybe it isn't easy, but they are capable. The same thing is true with the addiction to the psyche. You are capable of ceasing the absurdity of listening to the perpetual problems of your psyche. You can put an end to it. You can wake up in the morning and look forward to the day and not worry about what will happen. Your daily life can be like a vacation. Work can be fun. Family can be fun. You can just enjoy all of it. That does not mean that you don't do your best. You just have fun doing your best. And then at night when you go to sleep, you let it all go. You just live your life without getting uptight and worrying about it. You actually live life instead of fearing or fighting it. You can live a life completely free from the fears of the psyche. You just have to know how to do it. Let's take smoking as an example. It's not hard to understand how to stop smoking. The key word is stop. It reminds me of um, Bob Newhart. Just stop it. If you haven't seen that little clip, you should look it up. Do a Google for Bob Newhart and stop it. It really doesn't matter what patches you use. When it is all said and done, you simply must stop. The way you stop smoking is to stop putting cigarettes in your mouth. All the other techniques are just ways that you think will help. But the bottom line is all you have to do is stop putting cigarettes in your mouth. If you do this, it's guaranteed that you're going to stop smoking. You use the same technique to get out of your psychological mess. You just stop telling your mind that it's its job to fix your personal problems. This job has broken the mind and disturbed the entire psyche. It has created fear, anxiety, and neurosis. Your mind has very little control over this world. It's neither omniscient or omnipotent. I'll get the words out in a minute. It cannot control the weather or other natural forces, nor can it control all people, places, and things around you. Given your mind an impossible task by asking it to manipulate the world in order to fix your personal inner problems. If you want to achieve a healthy state of being, stop asking your mind to do this. Just relieve your mind of that job of making sure that everyone and everything will be the way that you need them to be so that you can feel better inside. Your mind is not qualified for that job. Fire it and let go of your inner problems instead. And I'm going to stop there and see if Michael has something he wants to say, and if not, then I'll continue reading. Well, he makes a great case for, you know, one of the bottom line phrases we come out with often is, it, you have to be out of your mind. You know, it's like he's, he's very adequately describing the problem, and the problem is whatever the mind has been structured into, and, of course, with forgiveness, one can bring the mind back into alignment with truth and alignment with supporting who we are. And then the mind becomes a servant rather than uh, an impotent child and a master. So the correction process, the healing process of forgiveness is a real key in returning the mind to its proper place in, in the game of life. 
So he does a nice job of that. Let's go on and see what else he has to say. Okay. So you can have a different relationship with your mind. Whenever it starts up telling you what you should or shouldn't do in order to get the world to match your preconceived concepts, don't listen. Just like when you try to stop smoking, regardless of what your mind says, you don't pick up a cigarette and put it in your mouth. It doesn't matter if it's just after dinner. It doesn't matter if you get anxious and you feel the need. It doesn't matter what the reason is. Your hand simply does not touch the cigarettes anymore. Likewise, when your mind starts telling you what you have to do to make everything inside okay, don't buy into what it's telling you. The truth is, everything will be okay as soon as you are okay with everything. And that's the only thing, only time everything will be okay. All you have to do is stop expecting the mind to fix what's wrong inside of you. That's the core, the root of it all. Your mind is not the guilty party. In fact, your mind is innocent. The mind is simply a computer, a tool. It can be used to ponder great thoughts, solve scientific problems, and serve humanity. But you, in your lost state, hold it to spend its time conjuring up outer solutions for your very personal inner problems. You are the one who is trying to use the analytical mind to protect yourself from the natural unfolding of life. By watching your mind, you will notice that it is engaged in the process of trying to make everything okay. Consciously remember that this is not what you want to do and then gently disengage. Do not fight it. Do not ever fight your mind. You'll never win. It will either beat you now or you will suppress it and it will come back and beat you later. Instead of fighting the mind, just don't participate in it. When you see the mind telling you how to fix the world and everyone in it in order to suit yourself, don't listen. The key is to be quiet. It's not that your mind has to be quiet. You be quiet. You, the one inside, watching the neurotic mind. Relax. You will then naturally fall behind the mind because you have always been there. You are not the thinking mind. You are aware of the thinking mind. You are the consciousness that is behind the mind and is aware of the thoughts. The minute you stop putting your whole heart and soul into the mind as if it were your savior and protector, you will find yourself behind the mind watching it. That's how you know that your thoughts that's how you know about your thoughts. You are in there watching them. Eventually, you will be able to just sit in there quietly and consciously watch the mind. Once you reach that state, your problems with the mind are over. When you pull back behind the mind, you, the awareness, are not involved in the process of thinking. Thinking is something you watch the mind do. You're just in there aware that you are aware. You are the indwelling being, the consciousness. It is not something that you have to think about. You are it. You can watch the mind being neurotic and not get involved. That is all you have to do to unplug the disturbed mind. The mind runs because you're giving it, giving it the power of your attention. Withdraw your attention and the thinking mind falls away. Begin with little things. 
For example, somebody says something to you that you don't like, or worse yet, doesn't acknowledge you at all. You're walking along and you see a friend. You say hello to them, but they just keep walking by. You don't know if they didn't hear you or if they actually ignored you. You aren't sure if they're mad at you or what's going on. Your mind starts going a mile a minute. Good time for a reality check. There are billions of people on this planet, and one of them didn't say hello to you. Are you saying that you can't handle that? Is that reasonable? Use these little things that happen in daily life to free yourself. In the above example, you simply choose not to get involved in the psyche. Does that mean that you stop your mind from going around in circles trying to figure out what's going on? No. It simply means that you are ready, willing, and able to watch your mind create its little melodrama. Watch all of its noise about how hurt you are. How could anybody do that? Watch the mind try to figure out what to do about it. Just marvel at the fact that all of this is going on inside simply because someone didn't say hello to you. It's truly unbelievable. Just watch the mind talk and keep relaxing and releasing. Fall behind the noise. Just keep doing this with all of those little things that come up each day. It's a very private thing to do inside yourself. You will soon see that your mind is constantly driving you crazy over nothing. If you don't want to be like that, then stop putting energy into your psyche. That is all there is to it. If you follow this path, the only action you ever take is to relax and release. When you start to see this stuff going on inside, relax your shoulders, relax your heart, fall back behind it. Do not touch it. Do not get involved in it. And do not try to stop it. Simply be aware that you are seeing it. That's how you get out. You just let it go. Begin this journey to freedom by regularly reminding yourself to watch the psyche. This will keep you from getting lost in it because the addiction to the personal mind is a major one. You must set up a method to remind yourself to watch. There are some very simple awareness practices that only take a second to do and yet will help you stay centered behind the mind. Every time you get into your car, as you're settling into the seat, just stop. Take a moment to remember that you're spinning on a planet in the middle of empty space. Then remind yourself you're not going to get involved in your own melodrama. In other words, let go of what is going on right then and remind yourself that you don't want to play the mind game. Then before you get out of your car, do the same thing. If you really want to stay centered, you can also do this before you pick up the phone or open a door. You don't have to change anything. Just be there, noticing that you notice. It's like taking inventory. Just check out what's going on. Mind heart, shoulders, etc. Set up trigger points in everyday life that help you remember who you are and what's going on inside. These practices create moments of centered consciousness. Eventually you will have persistently centered consciousness. Persistently centered consciousness is the seat of self, capital S. In this state you are always conscious of being conscious. 
There is never a time when you're not totally aware. There is no effort. There is no doing anything. You're just there, aware that thoughts and emotions are being created around you while the world unfolds before your senses. Ultimately, every change in your energy flow, whether it's agitation of the mind or shifts in the heart, will be what reminds you that you are back there noticing. Now, what used to hold you down becomes what wakes you up. But first you have to get quiet enough so that it's not so reactive in there. These trigger points will help remind you to remain centered. Eventually, it will become quiet enough that you can simply watch the heart begin to react and let go before the mind starts. At some point in the journey, it all becomes heart, not mind. You'll see that the mind follows the heart. The heart reacts way before the mind starts talking. When you are conscious, the shifts of energy in your heart cause you to instantaneously be aware that you are back there noticing. The mind doesn't even get a chance to start up because you let go at the heart level. Now you are on your way. The very thing that was holding you in is now helping you out. You have to use all energies to your advantage This path of letting go allows you to free your energies so that you can free yourself right in the midst of your daily life by untethering yourself from the bondage of your psyche. You actually have the ability to steal freedom for your soul. The freedom is so great. It has been given a special name, liberation. And that's the end of that chapter. Michael, are you there? I certainly am, and my mute button was pushed. So the problem's laid out, and if if you want to look at the solutions, and I'm sure that Michael's going to give us more solutions as as, uh, Jeannie's reading unfolds. But if you want to look at the solutions from the point of view of the why is this happening to me again work, then you're most welcome to go to our website, www.whyagain.org. Whyagain.org. And in the upper left-hand corner of the page, there's a link that says start here. And that will start you on your journey of stepping into especially how to use the first century Aramaic idea of forgiveness to dismantle the realities that he's pointing out so uh, so deeply that keep the mind rolling around in its challenges. And, you know, it's, it's like the mind has a rule, and the rule is seek but never find. And when you step into a state of being, when you function from a different place, knowing that you're not the mind or you're not the image that the mind shows you in the mirror, you're not the name that somebody calls you, but that you're a human being made of the, and, and this is such an inadequate word, but the stuff we call love, you start realizing yourself and showing up in your mind as that, showing up in your life, showing up in your physiology as love, then everything changes. And the step-by-step process of forgiveness for all those problems. And one of the reasons why his description, I think, is so universal, you know, the mind just has problem after problem after problem, 
is that generation after generation after generation that have gone before us have lived without the tools for resolving the energetic dynamics of the mind. And 2,000 years ago, this man Yeshua said, rather simply, here's how it's done. He invited people to do it. And there's one particular passage I'd like to refer to where when he tells people what it is they need to do, they half of, of the disciples that are there with him leave grumbling that it's, and their, their words are too hard a saying. It's too hard to go in and clean up this mind. And yet, if you understand the tool of forgiveness, you realize that it really isn't that hard. It, it certainly is a challenge, especially if there's never been anyone in your bloodline who's picked up the tools and done some correction in their own minds. Then generations and generations and generations of unresolved dynamics. You know, you listen to that story about the, the, uh, the Jews wandering in the desert for 40 years and you start to think logically and go, well, let's see, now that desert's about 35 square miles, so they want us to believe that this group of bright people who understood astronomy quite well were lost in a 35 square mile hot sandy place for 40 years. And you look at how illogical that is, how silly that is, and you realize that the desert story is just a metaphor for people who are lost in their own minds and have no tools, have no way to move out of the state of unconsciousness created by fear after fear, rage after rage, guilt after guilt, trauma after trauma. And yet there is a very precise, structured, reliable tool for dissolving those things from the mind. The tool is called forgiveness. So one of the ways to access it is on our website. Another way to access it is you can go to your app store on your phone, type in the words Heartland, H-E-A-R-T-L-A-N-D, one word, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. You'll be looking at the world's only forgiveness app. And with that app, you can begin to chip away at the... Pained perce generational perceptions held by the mind until the mind becomes a space where you show up as a human being, as the created essence that you are. If you hold a newborn child and tap into the essence of that newborn, you'll see that that newborn is the presence of love. And you recognize that that is who you are, even though the mind's been given all kinds of other ideas by the world, by our family systems, by our cultures. And it's time to clean up our minds. Time to do the work of healing. And that's the bottom line of every tool that we teach, you know, the original work uh, that we're referring to here started out with one basic tool, and that was the tool of forgiveness. Over the years, having worked with that tool, we've arrived at several other tools that assist in opening the mind and freeing the mind from its challenges. We actually just had a gentleman 
actually he's been on the show. I might, I'm, I'm thinking I might invite him to uh, come on the show and talk about his experience a little bit. But he just completed the codependence to interdependence intensive. And when people do that intensive or any intensive, we start out with what we call a personal code evaluation. And then the workshop completes with a personal code evaluation. And it basically breaks the mind down, the function of the mind down, and physiology into 10 different areas and shows where the blocks are. And so this gentleman had written and said he'd gone in and taken his, uh, his evaluation. And the, the changes are just like monumental. You know, on a scale of 1 to 100, let's say one of, one of the challenges that, uh, that he faced was that of fear. It was in a pretty tough place at the beginning of the intensive. And on a scale of 1 to 100, so, you know, 100-point scale, a change of 60 points happened, and I'm not sure just what time frame he did the self-study intensive over. I believe it was probably about three months, Jeannie. And in three months, I've got his go folder from, in front of me, and he took his first one in January, and so he just now took the second one, so six months. So June, so six months, and. He has shared with us on the show uh, previously that he's done everything, done all kinds of different works, therapy, and just he's, he's listed out some of the things that he's done and arrived at this intensive with a, a, a crisis score on fear and in six months turned his mind around to the point where you know, it, it's just it, when one steps in and does the work, the changes are just monumental. You know, I think about uh, the number of times over the years that we've done a workshop and then heard from somebody sometime later, whether it's a week later or three months later or a year later, the number of people that we've spoken to who were on the verge of suicide and then after having done an intensive, just been so delightful that they didn't follow through with suicide because they were able to see what their own minds were doing to them. And with the tools, bring correction so that a state of serenity and peace ruled instead of this constant, you know, circling around the pain and the trauma that uh, our culture tends to instill in us. So it's powerful to engage, and uh, I, for one, am deeply, deeply appreciative to this man, Yeshua, who 2,000 years ago laid out the tools, and I'm deeply appreciative of the fact that I kind of accidentally stumbled across the first century Aramaic language, and after doing a, a small amount of work with the, the tools from the Aramaic started to realize just how profoundly impactful they are. And so it became, you know, it's been the focus the last 40, I'm not even sure exactly, 43, 44 years ago that I started to work with the Aramaic language. 
and the tools that come out of that language. So it's delightful to share them with you. And if you're out there in listener land and you're on one of those stations where we can't see you, our call-in number is 563-999-3581. It's 563-999-3581. Call that number you're listening to the show. And if you push 1, that'll put a hand up in the control panel, and Jeannie will know that you want to talk to us, and we'll be having a conversation. So what's happening in your world? Where are you at with using the tools? And do you need any support or clarification in using those tools? If so, push 1. Let's have a conversation about it. 563 999 3581. So, Ms. Jean, do we have anything happening in the chat room or anything? Anyone in the phone queue with the hand up? No, it is all quiet. Um, and tomorrow, uh, you're doing the Global Book Club, of Course in Miracles. Yes. So. Yeah, we're up to three weeks out of the month now working with the uh, uh, Hear My Voice Book Club out of London, England. So it's uh, 3.30 tomorrow afternoon if you care to join us. I'm sure Jeannie has already got a, a link in the notes. There's a Zoom link. It will be done on a Zoom call. So you can just pick up that Zoom link by going to our website, whyagain.org. There's a microphone in the middle of the page. Click the microphone. Drill down, and uh, you'll see today's notes if you drill down to t- today's date. Or you can go to our website under Events, and you'll see a link to the Zoom call there. So at 3.30 Eastern Time tomorrow, which will be 8.30 in London, England, we'll be working with the lesson, What is the World? And then we'll do a Q&A session on that part- particular video. So if you care to join us tomorrow, be delightful to have you there. And beyond that, how can we support you? What's on your mind? Anything else resonating for you right now, Jeannie? I was trying to remember exactly what it was yesterday when I was playing with Arya in her room. And um, we were playing doctor, of course, and working with the dinosaur. And then something was said, I don't remember, and I said, oh, we've got to fix him. And she said something like, you can't fix a person. And we didn't go into great detail of discussing it, but that just kind of triggered in my mind, you know, you can't fix a person. They have to go inside and work out their own internal issues, and uh, you can only deal with your own, not someone else's. You know, so many people, the burden of their serenity, the burden of their joy, the burden of their aliveness on everybody else. It's like somebody else is supposed to make me happy. And if you're not doing it, if I'm not happy, then you must have a problem. And we look at the, you know, just look at the public media and the the song, the Beatles song, where, where the line is, look at all the lonely people. Where do they all come from? And how many people internally live in such turmoil and trauma? Some of them, some of the wealthiest people in the world. 
and yet they show their butts just over and over and over again, whining and complaining that they're everybody else's victim and everybody else is the reason that they're in trouble or they're having trauma or they're not happy. And, you know, it just, it, it's amazing how the world can take what's going on and if you understand the dynamics of the mind, how the, the game of projection unfolds and that universal one world religion of blame has such a hold on so many people. And when you recognize that you're the one that's responsible for the state of your own mind, nobody else made it that way. And nobody else, as you say, Jeannie, can correct it. Yari was right on with that one. And so the tools for self-healing and self-correction are available for anyone who wants to avail themselves of them. And we're here five days a week to enhance the conversation by providing our experience and our work in that arena to support each person, not just acquiring the tools, but understanding how to use them, how to put them to work, how to unfold, how to especially remove the drama and trauma from the mind and step back to the place where a natural human being exists. And a natural human being is, by definition, the presence of love. In fact, life is love flowing through a cell. And we live in family cultures and you know, global cultures that you'd think life was about anything other than love with the kind of fear and rage and guilt and guilt-inducing condemnation. And yet, when one steps up to the plate and says, oh, I'm responsible for this, I have work to do, then the removal from the mind of the drama and trauma game becomes a thinking of the right words it just becomes a delightful process of facing taking responsibility for pain that is being generated from within and dismantling it returning to the natural state of a human being So responsibility is a big, big step in the process. And when one takes responsible for their own ha- responsibility, pardon me, for their own happiness and stops the blame game, then they start to look at or, or have the opportunity to look at the parts of themselves that hold unhappiness. And if there are parts of your mind that hold unhappiness, then, you know, the mind will find in, in a million circumstances, the mind will have a million different stories about why you're not happy. And the truth is, you've never been unhappy because Bill did this or Mary did that or Harry did that or Hortense did that. You've only ever been unhappy because there's unhappiness in your mind. And once you realize that, you forgive unhappiness. No, you stop the world's game of, okay, you made me unhappy, but it's okay, I'll forgive you. No, we're not suggesting you ever forgive anyone ever again for anything. 
because forgiveness isn't about letting yourself or anybody else off the hook for what's going on inside of you. Forgiveness is the tool with which you remove from your mind what never belonged there in the first place and how to be restored to your natural condition as a human being. And as that occurs, everything changes. So we're here to support each and every person, literally, to make these tools available to every mind, heart, and being on the planet. And one of the big benefits and side effects is each person we interact with opens a space for us to do the next piece of our own work in cleaning up our own minds and our own lives together. There's no claim here that anybody here is perfect. It's just we've got a set of tools. We're not going to tell you as many will, this is how you have to live. Not our business, not my business. But if you want to change something about the way that you're living, our business is, here are the tools for doing it. And, you know, being here to hold space for what you choose to do with your world in, in your life. So I'm pretty much complete with my thoughts. If you're out there in listener land, give us a call. Push one. What's on your mind? How can we support you? You have a question on any um, of the tools, anything we've spoken of? Go ahead, sweetie. Um, I was just going to say, I just copied the uh, scripture uh, that you had quoted earlier about the where uh, Yeshua said, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. And, and they said this is a difficult teaching. Who can accept it? And they were grumbling, and, and he said, does it offend you? Then what will happen if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Um, so, and then it says that from that point forward that many of them walked with him no more. So what exactly did Yeshua mean on that? Maybe give a little more detail of the eating my body and drinking my blood. Sure. And they were also offended yeah. that he was saying he came from God. And they said, isn't this, you know, Joseph and Mary's son, you know, how can he say he's from God or whatever? Right. No. Well, and in the Aramaic language, there are many, many idioms. And idioms cannot be translated. You have to know the meaning of the idiom. You can't just translate words and come up with a, uh, an accurate meaning by translating words when an idiom is being used. You know, an example of that that I like to use is let's imagine we have a person that uh, you know, comes to one of our workshops, you know, somebody who, who speaks some foreign language and says they're coming to a week of workshops that let's say we're doing here at a facility in, in Bristol and you live here in Bristol and we know that you speak that language, let's say it's German. And as a really top expert in the German language, we invite you to pick this person up at the airport. And uh, we know you've got an extra room in your house, so we invite you to, you know, would you have them stay with you and translate for them because they don't speak any English. And so they come to the workshop. You, you're happy to have them. You're delighted to have the opportunity to hang out with them and practice your uh, your German skills. And at the end of the week, you know, we've had dinner a couple of times together. We've had a really enjoyable week. 
And at the end of the week, I ask you, as you're taking this person back to the airport, since I don't speak any German, to let him know that, you know, I think he's really cool, that we really enjoyed having him. And so as I ask you to tell him that I think he's really cool, you turn to our new German friend and you tell him that I think he's got a low body temperature. Now, in translating my words into German, that I think he's cool, he's got a low body temperature is perhaps a, a correct literal translation of my words. And while you translated my words perfectly, you didn't say a word about what I meant. Because, of course, telling him he's cool is an idiom. It isn't a translatable word. It's an idea that is not literal. So you might imagine this fellow is, I, you know, He's told that I think he's got a low body temperature. He maybe is insulted or confused or who knows what goes on in his mind when he hears that. And I've used an idiom in that case. So eat my body and drink my blood. And, and it's interesting. They, the response when they're told that is they say too hard a saying. And in our world today, eat my body and drink my blood is, is translated as taking communion, you know, having a little wafer and a little bit of wine. If that were what he was talking about, what could possibly be hard about that saying? You're going to do a wafer and wine. That, that's not a big deal. But he was using an idiom, and that idiom is saying, so you want to live as the presence of love in your world, as a human being, as the created essence that you are. And the way that you're going to do it is you're going to inculcate and use every tool that I'm offering you, and you're going to clean up the parts of your mind that hold pain and drama and error and craziness. And to look at what one has to deal with in their own minds can be quite a shock when people are confronted with it. And so, you know, in that case, we're told about half of his disciples said too hard a saying, turned around, left, and never came back again. As, as Jean just read, it did not walk with him again. It's like, hey, you want me to go in? You want me to face my rage, my hate, my vengeance, my theft, my guilt, my grief, my pain? Are you crazy? I don't want to do that. You want me to give up? Gee, you know, I got this thing going with a neighbor down the road. Uh, he buys this product from me. I charge him double, and he doesn't know it. And I get, you want me to give that up, and you want me to actually be honest with my neighbor? Too hard a saying. Hey, you say I can't violate my wedding vows with my wife anymore? I can't go play with that neighbor woman that we've been doing for years? No, too hard a saying. I don't make me go there. You want me to actually look inside my own mind and be responsible for what's happening inside of me? Too hard a saying. I'm out of here. What I suspect happened to that faction of the disciples and we're told it's about half of them at that point and and they're so dramatic in leaving that Yeshua actually turns to Peter who's been with him you know from the beginning and said Pete are you leaving too 
Like, does this challenge you so much? And Pete's like, well, where else is there to go? No, I'm here. Like, I'm going to go on. I, I don't get it yet. I know there's work to be done, but I'm, I'm here. Well, half of them leave when they're confronted with the idea that they're going to have to do their own work. And I believe that that's the half of the disciples that went out and created a, a thing called churchianity where the whole belief system is, well, there's nothing you can do because you're, you're fatally flawed from the beginning. So you don't have to take responsibility. You don't have to look inside yourself. You don't have to do the work this man was telling you had to, had to do. In fact, you don't have to, have to because you can't do anything. You're so decrepit, you're just a sinner anyway. So why don't we make up a whole theology that just lets him take care of it for us? And it's one of the biggest frauds that's ever happened. And sadly, it runs a great deal of the world today. There is a work to be done. There is a change, a massive, massive change that has to happen in the mind. And so his invitation was, step up, do your work. Clean up your life. Clean up your mind. And we have a hand up. Oh, awesome. Great. And I believe it's Joe. It's 864. You are on the air. Hey, uh, hey, I'm on the air. Hello, air. Hey, welcome, young man. Now, let me see if I can get the introduction correct. This is Joseph. This is a man who has always been so outstanding in his field. I think it's the one over to mm-hmm. the house you're usually standing in, Joe. Walk with me. Walk with me, brother. Yes. There, okay. There you go. <laughs> hey, Thank welcome. You. How are you, Thank sir? you. Outstanding. <laughs> was, that a, was that a good enough introduction? I know you're always, you always well, have something to say about that I, introduction, so I want to make sure it was I, you know, I, adequate yeah, today. I, I, I have a lot of fans. There's a lot of fans out there, and they expect a certain, you know, formality and decorum. And and, and uh, as such, uh, I think uh, these things need to be uh, yeah. demanded. Well, as long as every switch on the fan is turned on, as long as every switch on the fan is turned on, that's that's good. Yeah, then you get you get to be then you get to be really cool, right? That's no it. Got the fan going. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay, you ready? Uh, Here's my called in. You ready? All right, here it is. Go for it, sir. Uh, honor thy honor honor your mother and father. Okay, here is mm-hmm. the insight or the possible insight. Um your conscious your consciousness is masculine, your subconscious is feminine. Uh, the the notion, the the idea of honor your masculine and feminine. So in other words, each of us have these aspects within us that is us and the one of the Ten Commandments, honor your mother and father, or and or honor the masculine and feminine aspects of yourself. Any thoughts? Yes. Yes, actually, there's a, a whole uh, presentation on our YouTube channel that I did for Father's Day a couple of years ago on that topic on that very commandment. And I think that that could be a proper interpretation on those aspects of yourself. But on another level, Mm. most people's drama and trauma is 
either instilled or reinforced in their minds through relationships with parents, with mother and father. And in Aramaic, you'll notice that there's a, you know, there's a point where they say, Yeshua, you know, what's most important in this law and this whole thing you're talking about? And we're told that he said you're supposed to love God, love your neighbor as yourself. But actually he gave a different answer to that question. It was that you were required to function as a human being, as love, whenever you were interacting with the creator or neighbor, which in Aramaic means anybody that you're thinking about. And and if you did that, if you acted and functioned out of love, then you were maintaining your human life. That was the way you maintained your human life. So there's this standard that he set for everyone except for that one particular pair of people who tend to have a much deeper impact on our lives than any other neighbor. Mm. And that is mother and father. And so have Rachma was the answer when they said, you know, What's most important in the law have Rachma when you think of the creator, when you think of neighbor, and by so doing you maintain self. But then there's another standard, and that is honor. Have honor for mother and father. And the distinction for me, the real application of that for me becomes recognizing that probably my mother and or my father were my power persons. Right. And so well, yeah, zero, if I zero, carry... Zero to nine. Yeah. Hmm? Zero, zero to, to nine, nine years yeah. old. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so if I carry a power person dynamic that I acquired through interaction, let's say with mom, mm-hmm. the tendency will be by whenever my mind generates an image based in mom or based in feminine energy, and this would take it to that level where you're talking about acknowledging the feminine in yourself, that whenever my mind generated a reality about my mother, if I had unresolved hostility, fear, rage, guilt, grief, drama, trauma, I would tend to block my awareness of her as who she is, whether it's my mother today or a woman that I'm in relationship with, you know, decades later, will tend to fabricate a construct based in the unresolved power person dynamic. Mm. And I'll tend to replicate the power person dynamic in future relationships. Mm. In the Aramaic, Mm. the word honor includes the idea that Yeshua spoke of, of having rachma, of love. But you'll notice that in that particular passage, he doesn't say that you have to take it into action toward them. It's just telling you the condition you are required to maintain in your mind. Where with mother and father, that command is saying, now you have to take that presence of love that you are. Maintain the presence of your human life, love, when you are interacting with father or mother, and then bring that love into behavior toward them. And if I bring that active presence of love into behavior toward them, then the active presence of love is going to pass through the part of my mind where I have stored that power person dynamic 
Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tend to experience healing of that power person dynamic in me as I interact with mother and father. Well, and so I, I'm, I'm going to heal. But I would tweak it a little bit because of the word healing. There, there's, there could be, and for me, I used to be, I would be man, I would, what I call manhandled. In other words, my mother would grab me in such a manner, like mm-hmm. this is what, you know, come on, what are you, you know, what are you doing? And, and so there's that memory or that recall or that power pain. Power dynamic. Which, yep. Yeah, the power person dynamic. But, but it's, it's the recognition in me of the recreation of that, right, saying, okay, I'm, I'm actually I'm confused because I've actually looked at that and go, wait a minute, I've confused her manhandling me with being in Rachma. I've, it's it's not uh, being manhandled is not love, but I, right. I confuse it or twist it, and I have to untwist it, and as you say, heal. But there's pain in that healing. At first, there's oh yes. my god, you know, oh I was mistaken. Feeling, so experiencing that, yep. Yeah, that feeling of is not good. It's it, and that's the that's the tricky the trick tricky thing there it has to be welcomed you know and that's like wait a minute well welcome the pain well it's not really something no one's you know driving a nail into your or you know hitting you with a stick or something it's this again subconscious conscious awareness that is kind of uh, what's the right word you know it's 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 off you know it's off. The frequency, the vibration right. is like, whoa, this, what? Yep. No. So, mm. And so the, the directive in that commandment is, so now you stand as active, present love. Well, that pain is surfacing from interaction right. with mother. Mm-hmm. And you now bring that active presence of love through that pain in you toward mm-hmm. mother or whoever's resonated this power person dynamic. And as you do, it is the exposure of that pain to the movement of active present love that heals that pain. And by following that commandment, you get to heal. Amen. Yeah. Whereas if you act with hostility or fear toward mother Mm -hmm. or the person who's resonating that power person dynamic, then you just reinforce the hostility and fear, and more of that's going to be created rather than healing. I, I have to say, Does I think Avicen is, yeah, it's perfect sense. It's perfect sense. I mean, that, not that, but I, the two things. The number one reason was subconscious being feminine, the conscious being masculine, and I also want to say because I know we're short on time, and that is, I'm going to tell you what that the Avicen machine is just. I I can't I don't my left shoulder I have bone spurs I went through the whole uh, physical therapy uh, you know I, I went over my handlebars right. on the bike and, and really messed it up years ago maybe I don't know how long ago but and and ever you know since then I, I okay these are the remedies this is what you can do and uh, but now with the Avacyn it's I really don't I used to not be able to sleep on my left side. Because of the mm-hmm. pain, and uh, it's, it's gone now. 
It's physical. Dissolved. That's what I've, what I, when we first talked about, that's what I told you about the episode. It's physical forgiveness. It is the same process and it's moving energy on a physiological level so that those energy blocks literally dissolve from physiology. It's, it's monumental. Hey, easy, easy now. Come on. Jeannie, are you going to jump in here? When he uses words like monumental, I mean, come on. Hello? Anybody? Well, tell yeah, me how monumental it is that you've never been able to sleep on your left side or you haven't since the accident, and now you can. That's pretty big stuff. Monumental? Yeah. I'm teasing. I, I'm, yeah, no, you're I right. I know. That's it. I know. I should have said that. It's, it is amazing. I'd like yeah, to why didn't you say that? I will uh, throw I'm, in. I'm, let me throw in one thing before we run out of time. Um, yeah. you're, you receive energy from the left side, feminine side, and so it, you know, you're talking about your mom, and so it, it makes yeah. sense that you would have that blocked energy on your left side, and especially on your shoulder. You're not supposed to huh. carry that weight on your shoulders. No wonder you're in love there, uh, Michael. Yeah, I got it. I'm blessed. She's brilliant. She's brilliant, brother. Mm-hmm. She's got it. See yeah. you guys. I'm with you. All right. You have a blessed one. We cherish you, my friend. All right. You too. Bye. Everybody, thanks yep. for joining us. Blessings. Bye-bye. Hello. It is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.